Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. So, hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, yes, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas, which it's starting to get cooler, so we keep praying for for cooler weather. It was 106 yesterday, and... uh, I think it's only going to be 89 today, so that's a wonderful difference. Uh, today, I welcome a creative alchemist, professional harpist, and founder of the Bright Way Guild, Diana Rowan, to the show. Originally from uh, Dublin, she's lived in various places around the world. Um, she recovered from a, a soul-searching case of stage fright and other challenges, and she'll talk about that, I'm sure to become a teacher of how to release the, the creative within each of us. And uh, recent book is entitled The Bright Way. A, uh, it's a powerful handbook offering five steps to freeing the creative within. And it fits in very nicely with the, our unity philosophy. But I think you'll also find uh, resonances with uh, earth-based spiritualities um, and, and just with, with uh, spirituality in general, uh, um, open-minded spirituality. So it's a pleasure to, to welcome Diana Rowan to today's show. Glad you're with us. Thanks, Paul. So tell us a little bit about your story, because you, you, know, you, you mentioned that at the beginning of the book, that you, you had this debilitating stage fright for a period in your life. And, um, so, and, and really, it, it helped you, it precipitated you towards, towards this... Um, interest in creativity, right? How to, how to really tap into the reality of you and, and not the persona of you. Absolutely, yeah. So as soon as I started music, uh, seriously, when I was eight years old, I'd been kind of messing around on the piano and having a great time prior to that. And then I began it seriously, and I loved it so much. And I knew right away that I would become a professional musician. The thing was... Very, very soon, I began to feel extremely afraid of what other people thought of me because I thought everything was riding on other people's opinion of me. Mm-hmm. If I did not do well in competitions and exams, then that meant I would not be able to become a professional musician. So I became, yeah, extremely fearful. And this lasted for years and years. It was such a crushing case, actually, of, of performance anxiety. I did not know it was called performance anxiety because I tried to keep it secret. I was ashamed that I felt this way. I thought it was a sign. I thought it meant, like, oh, obviously you're not meant to be 
a professional musician if you have this kind of fear. You should be, you know, really confident and you should be, you know, just on fire to be on the stage rather than dreading it. And so I, I didn't get help for it. And I tried to hide it from my teachers and even from my parents. And so it just got worse and worse until it began affecting almost everything in my life. I, I began to get a lack of confidence in almost every single area. And eventually it culminated to me going to college to be a musician and, and giving up. I just couldn't take it anymore. I realized, you know, I am miserable 99% of the time. And this is going to be a very short life for me if I carry on this way. And so I actually, I gave it up and I had no backup plan. You know, I'd only planned on being a musician. So I actually started going into social work because I always had been very interested in how people are empowered, uh, but I hadn't really done it in any kind of professional context. And so I started doing that. And as I began working in like homeless shelters, battered women shelters, um, halfway houses, I eventually it would come out that I played piano. You know, people would find that. And they'd be like, oh, can you show me something, just a little something? And I would. And as I watched these people who really had hit rock bottom in many ways, as I saw their enjoyment and their sheer dignity that came out of them when they created, I realized, wow, this is what creativity is really about. And they taught me to remember what I really did music for. And so slowly, slowly, bit by bit, many twists and turns, uh, many of them spiritual, as you mentioned, I gradually ended up um, coming back to music and realizing that most people felt the way I did. Most people were afraid. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most people, everybody is creative. So that's how my system developed was from, from all these different threads coming together. I think a lot of us have uh, what might be called the imposter syndrome, you know, where you feel, who am I to do this? I, I know as a minister, you know, a lot of ministers have that initially when you're in seminary and all this. What, who am I to get up there and speak these spiritual truths to people? You know, how, how dare you? It's sort of an arrogance. Um, but it really isn't. It's arrogance from your ego, maybe, but from the spirit within you. And I think that's the key, isn't it, is tapping the reality of you, right? When you get lost yeah. in, in your ego, then, then you get the stage fright. But when you remember that, you know, I have a higher purpose here, I'm, I'm experiencing, I'm allowing spirit to express, if you like. That was the absolute key. And that's why step one in my system is define your purpose. And the purpose always ends up being something quite spiritual. You know, at first, as people do the system, because you go around the five steps over and over again, it's kind of like a lifetime system. Um, as people redefine their purpose over and over, it always carries the same essence, but it gets progressively more spiritual and more general to their lives. They find, mm -hmm. wow, this is actually my life purpose in many ways. And uh, yeah, so I think you're right on saying that it actually is remembering that spiritual truth. And when you really own that spiritual truth, you realize, wow, how can I keep this a secret? I want to share this. And in fact, everybody owns this. Mm -hmm. I don't own this exclusively. It's actually a truth that we all live. And well, I'm 
expressing it in a slightly different flavor. And that's why I'm here. And that's why you're here is to bring out all the different flavors of this, this truth, this universal truth that we all partake in. And we tend to um, compartmentalize, don't we? Sometimes, you know, we put our spiritual life is separate from our regular life, whatever. And of course, the big work is to integrate the two. And you know, unity—we call it a, a practical, what, practical spirituality. It's a way of life. It's not—it's not just something you do on Sunday or something <laughs> you do on the meditation cushion, you know. And then you have to get back to your real life. No, this is an extension, right? It extends into every aspect of your life. And that's what you talk a lot about in the book is, you know, how to make this real. Because you link it to the the, the, the elements, right? And, um, and so each of the five steps is, li- is linked to an element. And I love that because that's very grounding, right? It's, it's, it's literally elemental. You, you're bringing it to, down to earth. Um, and that's why I said earlier it's got a, has resonances with earth, earth-based religions or whatever. Um, and I guess the hence the bright way, right? When I think of the bright way, I think of uh, Bridget, Saint Bridget, or Brigitte, the Celtic goddess. You know, uh, Saraswati would be the. Uh, it's all around me. <laughs> yeah, uh, Saraswati is the sort of Hindu version of that. You know, yeah. the goddess of the white goddess of light and um, and creativity and music and and the arts and everything. Her, her vehicle is the is the swan. You know. And of course, in in Ireland, you get a lot of this, right? You know, you have a lot of resonances with with swans and the mythology around that. So, and and the swan is considered to be the the link between earth and heaven, right? The uh, in in Hinduism, you know, the swan is able to uh, fly over the Himalayas and it's able to separate milk from water and things like that to discern things. So these are all qualities, aren't they, of the bright way, the the way of all possibility, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I really wanted a system that would cross times and cultures, because if something works across times and cultures, to me, it taps into something that is a universal truth. And I want something that really is sustainable, something that will work right now, because when people are trying to tap into their creativity, oftentimes I've noticed that they get recommended like tactics or stunts like imagine the audience naked i mean this kind of stuff is not a long-term tactic you know it's not a strategy it's uh we need something deeper and i found that when i was looking um to get my way back to my creativity there was a limit uh to how far psychology could go to how far biological training could go like biofeedback and doing yoga and wonderful things like that there was a place that i had to go that was spiritual and it has to come back into the conversation just the biology intellectuality and psychology things it's not going to cover everything and you know across cultures they have acknowledged that there's a deep spiritual component to humans all humans and that needs to come back into the picture but of course as you know people get really nervous when you start speaking spirituality they think you're trying to convert them to a certain religion right exactly yeah well i I guess seeing people naked is was a step in the right direction you know because again it's going beyond the facade right it's going (laughs) how how they're, they're protected with their clothes to something more elemental again and innocent right it's but it's, sti- yeah. it's still the emphasis on out there and really what you're talking about is in here right inside of us that's where the real change 
I uh, think it's in the book you, you quote uh, Miles Davis, uh, unless I was reading another book. I think it was your book. And he said, uh, you know, they asked him, you know, who he plays for. And he said, I play for myself and the other musicians, not for the audience. Right. Um, and it's the, the same idea. Right. It's it's not that he doesn't want an audience. Obviously, there would be no point being Miles Davis. He didn't have an audience to appreciate his music. But he's playing for himself, really. He's doing the best yeah. he can be for himself and those who are also mutually playing with him. And when you do that, naturally, you, you convey something to the, to the audience. But the audience is kind of secondary. Though I, I, that's the first point. Talk about that. And the second point is to follow up on that. Yeah, that's true. But then there's also uh, great reciprocity that comes from an audience, right? Um, yes. If an audience is with you, you play better or you speak better than if an audience is not engaged. So let's talk about both those ideas. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Know, you, you know, it's nothing to do with the audience. Yes, it is. It's, it, yeah. it is. So it's both and. Right, right. I actually didn't quote that Miles Davis quote. Oh, I, you know, it's definitely an interesting one. And it's not yeah. that I disagree with i think his flavoring was a little aggro but i it, i understand what he means so w for me there's a big difference between what i call confessional playing or performing right. and universal performing so confessional performing is where you're really trying to get the audience to redeem you you want the audience to make you feel better mm. and they come out on stage and be a very sort of needy performer and yeah. what is it puts the audience in the position of needing to make you feel better to redeem you in other words and so they're essentially helping you and we end up in a very ego state when we are in a more universal state that is where we're tapped into universal energy and the way to do that is to go inside so you play for yourself in some ways as Miles Davis was saying, but to me, it's really that you're connected to your deepest purpose. And when you play from that place effortlessly, that energy starts radiating out to the audience. They start feeling it. They start picking up on it and bringing their energy back to you. And you become in this beautiful loop of what I call sacred reciprocity, where you guys are actually raising the energy together the performer and the audience or the creator and receiver of the creativity in other words you're co-creating at that point yes and so that's how i see that it all connects and it has to start with connecting to something universal first and it's going to be where the creator the performer is tapping into that space first and then they start essentially broadcasting Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Yeah. Okay, it must have been somewhere else I read that, Miles Davis, but of course it's sort of linked in because it's I was reading your book at the same time. And, but I, I like that, what you said. It's it, it, it's a little non, more nuanced. I, I think the person that demonstrated that for me, what you're saying, was um, Leonard Cohen. When, when he came out of uh, retreat, you know, he was in a Zen monastery for several years and, and his um, his accountant stole all his money, basically. So he had to go back on the road, and um, but he made more money in the last five years of his life than he made in the rest of his life, um, and, and and more <laughs> success. Right? It was fantastic. But but whenever you, I saw him once, and and uh, but I've seen him on TV as well, um, in, in, uh, recordings of his concerts, and talk about the reciprocity there. You know, he was at such a level 
where, where obviously he knew that people loved him and loved his songs, but he generously sh shared the, the, the energy of the songs with them, you know, and had, had a sort of a playfulness about it where he, he would pl uh, play in a delightful way with, with the energy that was there. And it was, it's just the lovely thing, you know, to see him in action. That, to me, that's, that's creativity at its highest level, you know, that he was able to take these amazing songs and, and make them very real for people on that night. It wasn't like somebody just, oh, well, I got, here's my greatest hits. Let me just, you know, throw them at you. It wasn't like that. It was, um, it was a more of a holy encounter, if you like, a connection. That's, it was a yeah. lovely thing. Yeah, it sounds like a real co-creation. Yeah, exactly what you, you're, you're talking about, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I love the, you talked about um, bringing together, you know, it's a liminal space, right, between things. Um, and in the liminal space, you know, between dawn and, and um, daylight or between uh, one event in our lives and another or between a loss and then a renewal, there's a liminal space, a place of uncertainty, but possibility, right? And it could be a very creative space. Um, and we are we're afraid of it sometimes, right? Because we can't control it. And, um, you know, we like to control everything. But you talked about bringing together uh, past wisdom and present illumination. And I love that uh, dichotomy there, seeming dichotomy. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the places I grew up was the island of Cyprus. And Cyprus has a great history as a crossroads of culture. It's apparently, you know, where Aphrodite was born and everybody was there. The ancient Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Romans, the Venetians, everybody has been there. And so there's a great sense of history at all times. And I had to take classics every single day. It was wonderful. Um, and so I got a great sense of history. And my dad had studied history in, in college. And so it was always something that was a big part of my life. So I really respect past wisdom. And also being a classical musician, um, I felt like I was on a first-name basis with the composers, you know. So I love the past, and also I feel like we're here for a reason, and we need to contribute our present energy, our present insight. We need to add to the procession of culture. And so that's why I want to tap into the, the wisdom and the learnings of the past, and I also want to bring direct present new experience into the picture and i think when we bring those two together it's pretty incredible mm -hmm. so that's that's what i believe um the most fruitful types of creativity come from well you know uh, michael beckwith who's a, a center for spiritual living minister and, and teacher you know talks about um, ageless wisdom and, and married mm -hmm. to new thought you know to it's a new nice. way to think, yeah. and it's very similar, isn't it? It's the idea that this this stuff's been around forever, and and so have we. You know, we've got a long history, each of us, uh, and yet well, there's also that moment of uh, newness, right, of, of uh, innocence again that, that that is there for us. You know, because every moment is a is a new moment. So to to marry those two together, you know, to the the all the wisdom that we we have, all that past wisdom. And, and and some of it wasn't so happy at the time, right? We we've gone through like you did, difficult times, challenges, but now it's become part of our received wisdom. Um, and then to marry that with this this, in fact, it helps to illuminate, doesn't it? It's um, it, it's know, a springboard for illumination. 
Yes. And, and in fact, that's why I titled it The Bright Way. It's not that I want everything to be bright. It's that we gain the courage to shine light into uncertain areas in our lives, right. the unknown. Because when we can look at the unknown, as you said, we tap into great creativity and we set aside fear. To me, fear is the the worst thing. <laughs> the worst thing for everything. It's the worst thing for relationships. It's the worst thing for learning. It's the worst thing for living. It's anti-life. And the opposite to that for me is courage. And when we gain the courage to be able to look at the unknown and shine light, it doesn't mean we're going to solve every single problem right away or ever, really. But we gain a certain amount of agency in our lives that makes us a loving person. When we're courageous, we live from the heart. And therefore, we have love as our guiding principle, not fear. So that's what the right way is really about, is this illuminating factor and learning how to essentially regain the courage that you do already possess. I believe people are tremendously courageous inside. I think we're born that way. But we may, over time, uh, fall prey to fear. And it's the great, the great challenge of our day. <laughs> Absolutely, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, it's September first, uh, twenty twenty. Right in the middle of COVID, um, we're two months before the uh, the American elections. Um, there's there seems to be two different versions of what it means to be in America right now, and they're they're clashing. And um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of choices to be made. Right? There's um, there's a lot of fear out there and uh, can be fear and uncertainty in our own hearts. So how do you personally deal with that? For me, it's again coming back to my purpose. And when I was tapping into my purpose for the very first time, I realized that I play music in order to come back to my true self. Because when I play music, I feel like I'm in this golden space where everything feels good. It feels connected. It feels safe. It feels right. It feels loving. I have hope for people. I have optimism. And then over time, of course, I realized, oh, well, that's just my general purpose in life, you know, is to feel that way and to have that kind of belief in others. So when I read something, you know, outrageous in the news, I'm like, come back to your true self. Do not give in to the fear. The fear makes you fear other people. See the good in them. You know, there's a saying, you know, love someone into being. And it's very rigorous practice these days. Because <laughs> you read these outrageous things and you think, um, how can that person be doing that? And you've got to keep holding the vision of what they really are. At the same time saying, you know, that particular behavior is unacceptable, but you see the good in them. And that way, the good in them fundamentally, they are a soul and therefore that soul must be good. Um, whatever evidence might be to the contrary, uh, you know, and when we keep holding that, it's a way for me to stay sane and also to still be able to look at the situation as it really is and take action on the current events. But right. to not to feel in despair. I am seeing a lot of my, my spiritual colleagues um, starting to fall into despair. And I'm like, we cannot afford to do this. Right. We can't do this. And so, yeah, it's tapping into my purpose. And like, remember who you are. 
remember who they are, remember what we're doing here. Okay, okay. <laughs> and then I may need to go into the garden and, and dig some stuff and, you know, <laughs> take some proactive measures to get back in touch with positivity. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know some people have had a hard time, you know, uh, separating the behavior from the person, you know, the, the person is evil or whatever. And, and so they can't behold the Christ in that person or see love in that person. I think that's really a sad, sad state of affairs, right? Because, yeah, yeah we may really dislike the behavior, but, but we still are called to see the good in that person, you know, that the inherent worth of that person as a spiritual being. And, and, and you know, people don't want to do that because they think, well, that would be um, agreeing with their viewpoint or whatever. Right. Well, it's, it's not, is it? It's you not can still strongly disagree with the viewpoint. But, you know, <laughs> because it's strongly, yeah. But, uh, you know, without uh, be, becoming hateful about it, because that only damages us in the, in, the, in, the, in the long term, right? If we lose that and become hate-filled beings ourselves. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that is absolutely us losing the plot if we become the very thing that we say we don't like. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so we have about a minute or so before the break. Uh, give us an outline of the five st stages, right? And then yeah. when we come back after the break, we'll talk in more detail. So just really quick, what, what are they? Sure. So the first one you heard is define your purpose. And then step two is set your intentions. So your intentions are very similar to goals, but not exactly the same. And they're always based around your purpose. So in the beginning, I recommend setting three intentions. So they are how you're actually going to manifest your purpose in the world. Step three is create your practicum plan. How are you actually going to do this thing? Taking the concrete steps. Step four is integration. So that's basically trying everything on for size, seeing what's working, and amplifying that, seeing what's not working, and remedying that. And the final stage is fulfillment, step five, which is where you celebrate your successes. And this is the great antidote to imposter syndrome. This is where you own what you've done and created, and you say, yes, I did this. It gives you incredible confidence, faith in yourself, and this courage to go ahead. So that's the, uh, the quick synopsis. Quick synopsis of the five uh, stages, and we'll talk about uh, them in more detail when we come back. I'm with Diana Rowan. Uh, we're looking at her book, The Bright Way, Five Steps for Freeing the Creative Within. The Rowan happens to be one of my favorite trees, too. I, lo I love the Rowan tree. It has that be those beautiful red berries and uh, lovely leaves as well. So not that that's got anything to do with it, but it's nice. So it's a nice, a nice connection. In in Celtic mythology, that's right. Yeah. Protection magic. Yeah, protection of magic. There we go. All right, let's take a break. <laughs> we'll come back after these messages from Unity. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. 
All right, welcome back to today's show. I'm with Diana Rowan. We're talking about her book, The Bright Way, Five Steps to Freeing the Creative Within. And as we mentioned earlier, this is so important right now to stay creative, to stay optimistic, to stay bright, you know, because it's easy to get pulled down into darkness and sadness with with all the stresses that are going on in our world right now. Uh, but but it's important to maintain that uh, sense of buoyancy. Uh, that's the, the word I like to use. Stay stay buoyant on the ocean of life here. Uh, we don't want to drown. Um, so these are five steps, practical steps to, to do just that. And um, Diana outlined them at the end of the, this first segment. We'll go into more detail uh, at the, this time around. Uh, so that there are five steps, and they're sort of linked with um, fire, water, air, earth, and spirit, right? So very much earth-centered uh, um, in that in that regard. So the first one we mentioned earlier is purpose. Sorry. And, and the purpose comes from inspiration, right? We're inspired to do something. Um, so there has to be that sense of, um, I really want to do this. I don't think we change our lives, right? Until what we're changing to is more exciting and uh, inspirational than what we're we've had before, right? Ha- we have to see that there's, there's something greater here for us. Otherwise, we're not going to do it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. A big question that I get oftentimes uh, around creativity is motivation. How do you stay motivated? And to me, motivation is really inspiration. So when we are inspired, we become effortlessly motivated. You can motivate yourself through force, but so, you know, fear, deadlines, things like that. Um, the thing is, those are not sustainable long-term. Right. For sustainable creativity, sustainable motivation, it's going to have to come from inspiration in the very first place. And so that's why fire is the element there, the, the fiery inspiration. And the reason I chose to connect the elements to the steps is, again, I want something that is true for all people. And the elements are true for all people. There is fire for all people, water for all people, and so on. And so I wanted to reconnect to nature, essentially, and creativity. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I enjoy using tarot cards. And, of course, that follows the, you know, the elements as well. And I, I love the, you know, the, the, the set of wands, because, which is the fire, yes. because uh, I love that idea that um, creativity and fire are linked to the, the growth of nature, right? So linked to wands, to, the, to, to fronds, to, to the stems of trees and et cetera. There's mm-hmm. energy within everything. And, and when we stand up, you know, then we become like mother nature would become like the trees right in fact uh, Suryu suzuki roshi the great zen teacher he said once actually he was based in san francisco he said uh, when it, when a tree stands up by itself we call that tree a buddha and i just love that line you know because it's when we're inspired we stand up we're we're like that wand we we are, we are there to be seen right we're, 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 and we we know when we have our sense of purpose because we feel strong we feel we're not cowering down anymore we're not wondering we're not the thinker you know like rodan's thinker or <laughs> we're standing up to be seen right i think that's that's an element of this isn't it it surely is. Yeah, I love tarot cards too. I have probably around 10 decks. And when I think of the wands, I all the associations you mentioned 
totally. Um, I resonate with those. And wands to me also seem very much like our calling in life, our passion. What is our calling? What is, you know, some people may say career, you know, if they're lucky enough to have their career, follow their calling. Actually, yeah, it's this idea of like, what is calling you in life? What is that passion, that fire that you're going to stand up for within yourself and for others? And then to set number two is to set the intention. And it's interesting. It seems counterintuitive to link that to water initially, right? Because uh, we think, oh, well, water goes where it wants to go. It's kind of passive. It's, uh, and yet, not really, right? It's, it's, what, it's more powerful than the rocks. Um, yes. You know, in the Tao, you know, they talk about water being, you know, the, the essential power of the universe and the flow. Um, and so in order to have um, more effective intention, right, there has to be that willingness to cooperate with a larger creativity, the creative creativity of the of the universe. Right. That's true artistry. Absolutely. Yes. And so with water, you know, water is very much associated with emotions as mm-hmm. well. And for me, the key to creating intentions slash goals is that they be based in emotion if you try to make your intention something like my intention is to write for two hours a day my intention is to garden for one hour a day you know after a while that's going to get really boring because that is not emotion laden but if your intention is instead phrased around an emotional uh emotional intention then you are much more likely to follow through on it and so that's why creating from an emotional state is much more compelling than just from a rational state. Also, you might say something like, you know, I'm going to uh, nurture my garden so that it, you know, the fruit fruits abundantly or the flowers come there forth, you, you know, so, so I'm connected rather than now oh, I'm going to spend two hours, you know, digging <laughs> or whatever. That, that's so it seems overwhelming, right? Um, exactly. Charles Fillmore, the co-founder of Unity, always said, go to, to go to what is back of something. You know, don't be fooled by the, the surface of things. Yeah. Um, there's a meaning deep within it. And I, and I think that, too, some people say they want a Cadillac or some fancy car. And he would say, no, you don't want a Cadillac. What you want is an, uh, an effective means of um, transportation that will, you know, allow you to live, um, you know, the life that you would love to live. So take your mind off the car itself and what the car represents, right? So I think that's, a, that's an important part of intention, right? Sometimes we get lost in the, in the, in the outer symbol rather than the, like you said, the, the true feeling of what that intention is about. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. When we remember that true feeling, that's very motivating. We want to follow through on that intention. So you don't want to become a good harpist. So you, always hit the right notes. You want to be a good harpist so you can, what, express beautiful sounds, yeah. right? So it's, it's a means to an end, yeah. Exactly, get that, I want that feeling. I want that feeling of connection and freedom. And then I'll sit behind the harp. But if I'm like, oh, I'd better sit down and practice for two hours and you do some scales, it's like, uh, actually, I need to do something else right now. <laughs> yeah, right. You know. But then having said that, we got step three, which seems to be, the, the tough one for a lot of people, right? Yeah. It's, the, it's the practicum. It's, put, 
it's it's learning the skills, right? So, yes. and I think a lot of people do stop on this one because they they say, well, I, I've got a purpose, I I've made my intention list, but darn it, I didn't realize there was going to be so much work involved, <laughs> um, you know. It, and this is yeah. the work the work step, isn't it? There's a lot. There's a lot of consistency that we have to put into this, right, to be successful. Yeah. Yeah, and so this is the practicum plan, and for me, it's connected to air, because we really want this clarity around creating our practicum plan. We want right. to feel like we're actually creating space rather than bogging ourselves down with details. And so the most important things I would say um, are to really understand what your energy level is throughout the day. I think this is a really great place to start because oftentimes people are choosing to do their most creative activities after everything else. Mm. After they've taken care of all the business of the day and then they're surprised as to why they don't have um, enough energy for their creative endeavors. So a very quick tip would be Notice when your best energy times are. Are you a morning person? Are you a night owl? I'm a night owl. Um, so really weight your most creative activities towards your best energy times. And for, for every person, that's different. So uh, that's what step three is full of, is these kinds of tips about how to actually manifest in the world. When I went to uh, university and read the prospectus, you know, one of the um, things that stood out for me, it said, uh, you will learn how to um, see the difference between the essential and the inessential. And I thought, mm, that's cool. You know, that's, I want to do that. And, um, that's, and it, it proved to be true, too, in my career, um, that, the, you know, it helped me do that. And, and I think this uh, learning is, is part of that. It's discernment, right? It's discerning. What's really important here? What, what I really need to focus on? And of course, air, coming back to Tarot, air is the sword. And, um, and the sword is the, the sword of discernment, right? That cuts, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. It cuts between the, <laughs> that which is real and that which is, you think may be real, but isn't. Um, so again, there's a, there's a lot of discernment that comes in at this stage, I think. Yes, there is absolutely in that stage and also in the next one in step four, which is integration. Right. That's where you get to try everything out and just see how it works. And the very biggest key with integration is to sidestep judgment. Avoid saying, oh, this is good and this is bad. That mm. actually tends to stop people dead in their tracks, even if it's good, because then they get afraid they can't replicate the goodness and so they won't do the thing again from fear of like oh it won't be so good next time so instead we use discernment and our big question during integration is is this thing working and if it is working we ask why so that we can amplify that thing that is part of your style that is your learning style it's your creative style it's your style in life and it's really what your creative voice looks like, your artistic voice, some people say. Um, the other part, you know, if something's not working, we also ask why. We don't just go, oh, that's bad, keep doing it, and you'll get better. You might right. actually make it worse. <laughs> you know, maybe you need to do it differently. Ask why. You know, there is a remedy. There's always a remedy for the situation. So you ask why, 
and remedy from there. And I walk, I walk the reader through how to do that. So either way, you win. In right. In this stage, it seems that you 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 don't want to be afraid of failure, right? You you're gonna. Absolutely. It's not always going to work out, right? But you have to keep keep persevering here. That's part of integration. Yeah, there's a whole section called Mistakes as Allies, and it shows mm. why mistakes are actually key to evolution and to getting better at what you're doing. Because if you're not making mistakes, you're not really growing. You're probably rehashing what you already know, or else you're just having a lucky, uh, you know, a lucky break. Um Either way, let's make it more conscious. And the mistakes really, really help us. You know, I, I hope it was your book, because I'm wondering wondering now when I remember these certain things, <laughs> that it was this book or another book. I was but in, in, in the book, I think it was this your book, uh, you mentioned that, you know, when you came across uh, musicians that weren't from the Western tradition, that were, yes. say, from Africa or, or other parts of the world, you know, they weren't so concerned about getting every note perfectly right. Um, if they made a mistake, it was okay. They could integrate that into the the piece, right? And um, we're, we're overly obsessed sometimes, I think, in our Western classical tradition with perfection, you know, a, a, a technical perfection. And, and that's, that has its place. I understand that. You know, we probably need that. But but there is something uh, powerful, isn't there, about the the idea that you can be fluid, right? And some of the most beautiful music, uh, in, especially spiritually inspirational, you know, from say say the Sufi tradition or some of the African traditions, um, you know, there's an energy, and they're not always getting the the notes maybe perfect in in a in the classical sense, right? But but that's okay, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a real respect for understanding what wanted to come through at that moment. Mm -hmm. And it's quite possible that it was a different note that was on the page or supposedly part of the song. There's more an idea of the song being a guideline or a contour rather than, oh, it's exactly this note lined up at exactly this time with these other notes. No other possibility exists. You know, that's quite um, an unusual perspective in music is to be as precise as classical music right and i think you know avant-garde music in in the west uh some of the new composers you know are open to that right and to bring in different sounds uh you know tapping on on the the dampers on the piano you know and plucking the strings and things (laughs) like that which would be anathema to you know a classically trained pianist who'd say my god you're not supposed to do that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but it, it, it yields yeah. something very interesting, right? Um, and, of course, these people are usually able to play the piano brilliantly as well. You know, it's not right. like they've jettisoned their talent. It's just that they're, they've expanded it a little bit, right? Absolutely. Yeah, none of this is about taking sort of a low road or the easy way out. It's really about being more engaged. Right. And- engagement to me is what creativity is so as long as you directly engage with whatever you're doing you're being creative you can be creative writing an email you can be creative writing a business proposal you can be creative in a conversation it's not just about playing harp or piano you know it's about showing up and engaging and when you do that you are automatically being creative i love that which is the art of your life right that's that's what we're talking about being creative in (laughs) in everything that you do, because many of us aren't called upon to be musicians or artists or whatever, but mm-hmm. we can still be creative. And I, oh, I love 1, that. 1,000 million percent. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. I mean, my great fear is that I would give the impression that the only way to be creative is to create music or, you know, various types of um, what we might think of as art. Uh, in fact, to me, art and creativity are, are vast and they're our birthright and they show up whenever we show up. Right. You know, I've never been a trained musician and, uh, or even learned an instrument, really. But I, I noticed when I was showing my, my grandson, one of my grandchildren around my house, how many musical instruments there were. You know, there were, there's flutes and, 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 and tambours and drums and this, that and the other and, uh, and the harmonica. And so, I, you know, I thought this is cool. And, and he was very into listening you know, at that stage. He's just one. And uh they're very open, of course, at that stage. Yeah. But I decided that I would uh, take up the harmonica again. I used to blow it a little bit when I was younger, and so I bought a, a you know a couple of harmonicas, and uh, and I decided I'm not going to try and learn the harmonica. You know, I'm not I'm not going to get a book that tells me. I'm just going to blow it and enjoy it and learn it, uh, learn my way around it. You know, organically. And and that's much more fun because you know if you start you know doing all the the arpeggios or you know all that oh my god I don't want to do that I just want to you know allow my spirit to express through that sound and it's going quite well and when I trust myself to do that right it, it, it sounds good you know yeah um, and on days when I'm not into it I can tell I'm just not allowing the flow you know right and yeah. uh, so it's been fun though and, and it's especially fun because I've given myself permission not to learn it you know mm -hmm. technically just to use it uh, inspirationally and then see where it goes so fabulous which is fun yeah yes yes I mean how much more motivating is that than coming from a place of, well, I need to practice my harmonica one hour a day. <laughs> yeah, really, exactly. It really, it, it's, uh, it's exactly what we've been talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so we're at uh, step four. Step five, fulfillment. Yes, finally, mm -hmm. I've got the fulfillment, which I must say that the each step is a spiral, right? And then you mentioned that in the book. So it, it's not like you're moving through each step uh, sequentially and then you get to the final step. You're going through this, you know, these five steps over and over again, right? You do. So you do go through the steps sequentially, but you go through them over and over again. Yeah. As soon as you reach step five and you've really enjoyed step five and you've reveled in your fulfillment and really spent some serious time in there, because people always try to shortchange themselves on fulfillment and rush through it. But yeah. I recommend during fulfillment that you take the time to write down all your your wins and triumphs and successes and really own those things and feel proud then automatically you start to think about your purpose again and so then you're, you're like oh you know what my purpose actually has this other little nuance that i didn't bring out enough last time but i'm ready to bring it out now and so from that new iteration of your purpose you set new intentions and then there's a new plan to how to manifest it with your practical so yeah you keep cycling around the um the five steps the internal circle of the elements with the artistry the technique the learning all those guys those happen all the time simultaneously at all times artistry and technique are in play and so for example so there are five essential elements inside so there are kind of two timelines going on but not, none, of them, none of them is linear 
so to get to step five, which is fulfillment, this is where you really celebrate what you are happy with having done. And you feel proud and you own, yes, I did that thing and I feel good about it. You know, we tend to, when we achieve something, immediately start going on to the next thing we should do. And this, number one, can lead to burnout. But number two, it can also lead to a sense like, oh, I didn't really do that thing. Yeah. I don't own it fully. And so during step five, the crucial part is you actually have to write down, for your eyes only, nobody else has to read it, what you feel really, really happy with having achieved. And always people are so surprised by what pours out of them. They're like, I really thought I hadn't achieved that much going around the spiral this time, but I achieved so much and I did not realize it. And it gives incredible self-esteem, incredible confidence. I think we have a hard time with that because, uh, you know, we're taught to be perfectionists, you know, that, uh, oh, well, that wasn't any good or that wasn't right. anything. And, and, and instead of giving ourselves permission to appreciate, you know, what, what we've achieved. And, and I don't know what, what part of our American culture that invo- invokes, yeah. but it, it seems to be strong. And, uh, and or we compare ourselves with, you know, super talented people and I'll never measure up to that. And, do ourselves a disservice the step five is also the community step right when you you feel connected to you're fulfilled because you you've made that connection with the whole ball of wax you know which is yes. the universe and the people <laughs> in it right so we you feel um uh, what involved you know you know you're no longer cut off and i think that's another thing we struggle with is you know never feeling part of the whole you know that um and that's why we go tribal because we're trying to find connection, but it may be in a, uh, you know, a, a less than satisfying way, you know, to, to have a group that's my group, whereas really <laughs> we're, we're, part of, yeah. we're part of the whole, right? And, um, and when we can really feel that, and you, you call it sacred reciprocity, which I love, I like that term, because I think that's what it's all about, right? That, that we're, uh, we're giving and taking uh, from each other all the time, you know. Just, just to have food on our tables is an example of reciprocity because, you know, so many people have brought us that food and we, and we partake in by being able to buy it and whatever and preparing it. So um, it's a beautiful thing. And that's just one example. Every, everything is, is reciprocity, I think, really. Yeah, I think you're right on. I mean, when you say that's what it all comes down to. Yeah, that's why we create. We create in order to connect, to connect with ourselves and with spirit and with each other and with the earth that's ultimately what creativity is for is to connect and i think when we look at our greatest fear our greatest fear is disconnection right that's the one that gets us and by re-establishing our creativity we re-establish our connection when people practice fulfillment and they do appreciate just how connected they are they actually start appreciating everybody else much more as well, just like you mentioned with the sacred reciprocity. Sometimes people are like, oh, but if I write down all my successes, I'm going to become this insufferably arrogant person. And I'm like, no, it's actually the opposite. You mm-hmm. are going to appreciate others more. And on top of that, you will have less jealousy. You will not be envious. 
the way that you have in the past because you will know what you have achieved. You will feel self-esteem and feel good about you. You will not feel those awful feelings of disconnection and jealousy and all these you know, negative things. In fact, it's a total win when you practice fulfillment. Yes, beautiful. All right, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you yeah. to tell us uh, <laughs> just uh, some words of wisdom, okay? I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to think about it because I'll tell the folks about what's happening next week. So while I'm doing that, think about what, what can I really share or that we haven't covered so far that would be helpful and inspirational. All right. But next week, um, Ellen Meredith is joining me and uh, she's going to discuss her book on self-healing and energy medicine. It's entitled what language your body speaks. So it's nicely tied in with what we're talking about today. It, that is a very profound book too. In the language your body speaks with Ellen Meredith. So join, join me next week. But right now, Diana's going to give us words of wisdom. <laughs> okay. So I know that everyone is naturally creative. It is not just for so-called talented people. So you are creative. You who are listening right now, you are creative. And creative creativity happens whenever you engage directly. So whatever you're doing next, be there. In your conversation, in your email, your interaction with your children, interaction with your pet, be there. You are being creative. And the last part is you can start being creative at any point in your life. It is not like, oh, by 18, you need to have done X, Y, Z. No, right now, today, you can be creative. Excellent. And there we go. Stay creative, especially at this stressful time, folks. We can do this. We can, we can have some something bright in our lives, which comes directly from the the heart of who we are. And that's a, that's a lovely way to end our show today. I want to thank Diana Rowan for being with us. That's been a lovely show and a great book. So thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. I've loved and it. Th thank, thank you for tuning in, folks. We appreciate you too. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 